It says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Survivors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of hearing it. We thank you for the fall festival yesterday, and bless all the people that helped make it possible, and all the people that came and were generous with their time and ministering to others. We pray that the seeds planted yesterday would bear much fruit. It would land on good soil. Father, we thank you that uh, you use us, you use our church to make a difference for the kingdom. Continue to do so, we ask. Continue to have us follow you each step of the way. Continue to have us listen to where you are leading and guiding us and have us to be faithful to follow. Lord, even now we pray for the kids' Christmas program. Uh, Christmas is still a couple months away, Lord, but prepare the hearts of the people that are going to hear the gospel that day and let them truly receive it and respond favorably. We thank you that that's only possible by your spirit, so we pray your spirit even now would be working on people's hearts. Thank you, God, that you are so good to your children time and time again. Uh, you give us what we don't deserve. Thank you. Amen. Okay, as I've mentioned before in the book of Obadiah, it's divided into four sections. And so we've already looked at the first section, the second section, the third section. Uh, we're going to probably reference the third section a little bit today, but we're actually right up on the fourth section, which begins in verse 19. Um, here's the thing. There's really two approaches that we can take to life. Two approaches we can take to life. One approach as I'd call it, and we looked at it last week, the lex talionis approach. Do you guys remember what lex talionis means? Okay, well, that's why you came back this week. <laughs> it's the law of retaliation. The law of retaliation, which is really just the idea of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's a standard of justice when it comes to the court system where we want the punishment, so to speak, the punishment fits the crime, right? The punishment fits the crime. But a lot of times what can happen if we're not careful is we can take that approach, the eye-for-eye approach, and, and decide that's how we are personally going to act towards other people. So it ends up being a form of payback. You know, you cut me off driving, I'm going to speed up and cut you off driving. 
You insult me, I'm going to insult you. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. But the thing is, brothers and sisters, it's the law that adjudicates, and it's the law that hands out the punishment, and ultimately, the lawgiver. So, if you take the Lex Talionis approach, you end up with a life of revenge, you end up with a life of anger, you end up with a life of bitterness, because it ends up being the way that you interact and treat with others. Basically, if you do X, I'm going to do Y. And, and the law, uh, <clears throat> that's the, the standard with the law is what we're trying to take and, and perform on our own, personally. We don't want to do that. Uh, we want to be walking however the scripture tells us to walk in each and every situation. And it doesn't say, oh, if this is done to you, then this is how you react back. It tells us to walk in a spirit of love towards all people, regardless of how we're treated. It was interesting. I was listening to this interview with one of the police officers uh, injured um, at the Capitol on January 6th. Um, and here's what he said, talking about the people, uh, the different, and some of those cases are still working their way through the court. Uh, but he was, he was mentioning one gentleman had just uh, been, been sentenced. He said, the only thing I'm interested in seeing them, talking about the, the people specifically that, that uh, injured him, uh, the, the only thing I'm interested in seeing them do is suffer. I'm not looking for apologies. I'm not looking for them to turn their lives around. If they want to do that, they can do that. That's fine. But I want them to suffer. And when I was listening to that interview, like my mouth literally dropped open. But guess what? At times, if I'm honest, and I think if you're honest as well, that's where our hearts can easily end up and be in our attitudes towards people that have hurt us. We want them to receive their comeuppance, so to speak. But time and time again, the Lord reminds us and tells us that he is the one who judges. Look at, look at Romans briefly. Keep your place in Obadiah because we're coming back. But look at Romans chapter 12. Also, that background music is we're blessing another church meeting in our basement right now, all right? So you can hum along if you want. Just don't do it too loud, all right? <laughs> Romans 12. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. How many times can we do it? Never. Never. Never avenge yourselves. But who are we supposed to leave it to? Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then in our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, the Lord is an avenger in all these things, okay? So the Lord's going to take care of it in all these things. Guess what? Honestly, we should just like sigh, like a sigh of relief because we're like, okay, God's going to deal with it. And guess what? When God's dealing with something, he's going to deal with it exactly and perfectly as it needs to be dealt with. And if we try to do it, let's just be honest. If it's up to us to give out justice, we're going to like go to like overboard on justice. And we're going to be, you know, zapping people left and right. No, God's the avenger. He will avenge in all these things. Deuteronomy talks about it. Hebrews talks about it. 
and what Israel wanted to do, and they wanted to get their own revenge here in the book of Obadiah, God's reminding them that he will do it, and he's going to take care of it. So don't take the eye-for-eye approach in relationship with others. We want to take what I would say is like the forgiveness approach. Look at Colossians chapter 3. In verse 12 it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So notice all those things that we're told to put on in verse 12. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. I mean, There's no wrath there, is there? No. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to bear with one another. I mean, in a nice way, he's like, put up with one another. And guess what? Everyone puts up with you. All right? Everyone puts up with you. And everyone puts up with me. Okay? In some form or fashion, people put up with you. And they still love you. Right? Sometimes in spite of who you are. But he goes on. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And then he, I love this because he tells us how we're supposed to do it as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And then he finishes it up, verse 14. And above all these, what's what's the all these? Well, it's the verse 12. The compassion of hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All right, so we're putting on the love and we're putting on those other characteristics that are talked about. That's what he wants us to do. That's what I would call the forgiveness approach. What does Jesus tell us in Luke 6? Bless those who what? Who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you or persecute you, your version might say. Does he say persecute those who persecute you? No? Does he say curse those who curse you? That's the, that's the eye for eye, okay? That's like acting like we're the law. No, we're, we're not called to walk according to the law in that respect. We're called to walk according to the Spirit, okay? And if you've got the Spirit of God living in you, then you can do things that really only believers can truly do. Walk in love when we should walk in unrighteous anger. Walk in truth when we want to be filled with deceit and lies. So we walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. What did Edom do? Well, they decided to take the, the Lex Talionis approach, right? We're going we're gonna to give them what, what they got coming to them. But here's the thing. we got to choose which path we're going to walk because ultimately we end up choosing one of those two paths and it kind of becomes like our default, our default switch or our, our default path. So if sometimes you try to take the Lex Talionis approach, and sometimes you t- kind of take the forgiveness, eventually you're just going to end up on one path or the other. I encourage you, because of what we have seen in the Word, we need to take the forgiveness approach. Look, that's hard to do, all right? That's hard to do. 
Each one of us here probably, if we probably either lean a little more law or we lean a little more gospel, all right? There needs to be a healthy, a healthy, a healthy mix and a healthy blend there. But it, we probably lean different ways, um, each one of us individually. <clears throat> but here's the thing. God wants us acting according to what he's shown us already in his scriptures. And he lets us clearly know he will take care of justice from his point of view for any personal wrong that you've suffered. Now, <clears throat> that doesn't mean like at some point courts might not be, need to be involved. Uh, Romans tells us, you know, that the state doesn't bear the sword in vain, right? So it's there to administer justice. That's God's hand of justice in part on this earth. But a lot of times, look, many of us, probably most of us, probably all of us have, have had many, 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 many deep hurts done to us by other people. And if we're honest, it'd probably be hard to admit, but like those deep hurts happen from other people. Well, guess what? You're probably one of those other people that have hurt other people deeply. You probably don't want to admit it. I don't want to admit it. So a lot of times, you know, we hear verses like this and we think about all the people that have hurt us, but guess what? Really the idea is, hey, who, who have I hurt? How have I not walked in righteousness towards others? How have I abused the privileges of grace that God has given me? So take the forgiveness approach. So back in Obadiah, we have <clears throat> the first 18 verses we go through. Now we're focusing on the last, the last few, 19, 20, and then we'll get to 21. But we have 21 verses here. And I want you to notice something. As we've kind of gotten further into the book, the picture enlarges and the scope gets bigger in terms of application and, and in terms of who's involved. Because initially it's Edom that's kind of the focus, but then as we get towards the end, all of a sudden the nations are brought into it. And then we're going to see even here, by extension, the nations is not just the nations then, it's all the nations, period. It, so it wasn't just an idea of that was for them back then, but it's 21 verses, and, and it speaks to everyone, even us today. It's 21 verses, but it, it applies to everyone, even us today. And it's 21 verses, and the truth still rings true thousands of years later. So verse 15 like, that scope enlarges all the nations. And even a small little book like this has huge implications and broad applications, which tells us something about God's Word. All right? It's the permanence of His Word. We could say maybe the unchangingness of His Word, maybe even the immutability of His Word. But it has something to say to us today. So, you know, this was written specifically to Edom thousands of years ago, but it was also written to us thousands of years ago. And yesterday when, when I was sharing with the people at the fall festival, uh, I was talking about Mark 4 and the parable of the sower. And here's the thing, you know, my basically final exhortation before I went into the gospel is, you know, there's the four different types of soil. And it was really the exhortation for the believers was to be the good soil. Because the seed 
doesn't change, right? The seed is the word. So the seed doesn't change. What, what's the difference in whether the seed bears fruit or not? It's the efficacy of the soil, if you will. How good is the soil? How good's the soil? Well, my encouragement, I mean, here we are talking about God's word, is, is be that good soil so that when the seed lands on you, it bears much fruit. So whatever context you're in, I'd say specifically when you're, when you're here on a Sunday or involved in a life group or at the men's or women's Bible study, like you're hearing the word. Well, make sure you're the good soil that's letting that seed get planted and then bear fruit. Whenever the Lord is speaking, even in the midst of judgment, there is always a glimmer of hope. If you have the Lord, who's got the Lord on their side? You got the Lord on your side? If you've got the Lord on your side, there is always hope. There is always hope. And we see that in verse 17, where it says, in, in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. Okay, in the midst of judgment, mercy is still present. There's judgment for the wicked, but there's mercy for the righteous. And time and time again, the history that God lays out with his people bears witness to this. Look at 2 Peter chapter, chapter 2. Verse 4 of 2 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Look at the contrast here. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Okay, so that, that's, the ju that's judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, that's judgment, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Noah, right? That, there's the mercy. He's sparing Noah. He goes on, if, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, there's the judgment, right? But, but who's living in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, there it is. If he rescued rot, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. There's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, but oh, there's, there's Lot, so God rescues him. There's the entire world, but what God, does God do? He rescues Noah and his family. And it goes on, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Okay, so there, there he's rescuing us. Whatever the situation, he's rescuing us. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And there's the judgment. Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Okay, And then notice even, even in, in a broader context, notice how Peter takes those Old Testament stories and then says, hey, look how it applies to us. 
I mean, he, he's mentioning different, you know, Noah, and he's def- the angels that, that sinned, and then he's mentioning um, Lot, right? And then, and then he says, look how it applies to us. Like, look what he did then, and guess what? He's going to do that for us. So we see this transition towards the end of Obadiah going from the day of the Lord to what I would say is the kingdom of the Lord. So the reference, uh, turn back to Obadiah, the reference that we have there in Obadiah in verse 19, uh, Mount Esau is going to be mentioned in verse 19, and then it's also going to be mentioned again in verse 21. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. It kind of helps us uh, it's called a, a nice little term called an inclusio. So it's like, hey, th- this little passage, make sure that you deal with together. And it's interesting because the first 18 verses are more set up as poetry. And then these last three, 19, 20, and 21, are set up more as prose, more as just written discourse. But really what we see here in verse 19, and, and what I'm going to focus on for a little bit, is the restoration of the land Israel. And really, the the statement to begin here is what God promises, he always brings to pass. So look at verse 19. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. So the Negev refers to the region, kind of basically southern Judah, and it literally means dry ground. So it, it was a very a dry area, almost you know, desert-like. But the Edomites were strongest in this area since there wasn't much um, inhabiting the area. There was, I mean, it wasn't a, uh, an area that was, that was fertile for growing really much of anything. So it was mostly uninhabitable, and thus it was easy for them to initially overtake. So the Negev, this area, is going to end up possessing Mount Esau. Mount Esau here uh, specifically refers like, to the mountainous area of the Edomites, but standing in general for all of Edom. Then it says, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. Well, Shephelah means lowland, and that's the really the coastal plain areas and the foothills. Okay? And what happened was this was the land that was assigned to Judah and Dan, but it, they frequently felt the pressure of the Philistines. Think all the way back to King David, right? The Philistines, the Philistines, Samson, the Philistines, right? They're in the picture. Uh, David ends up pretty much subduing them for quite a while, but they're still present there. They're not completely wiped out. So this, this part of the land assigned to, to Judah and Dan is going to finally completely succeed against the Philistines. Now there's some, there's some irony here in Obadiah's prophecy because this, this area of the Negev really is just like a territory. It's not the name of a city. It's just like a territory. And same with the Shephelah. It's just like, it's like the lowlands. It'd be, that's how we could say it. The dry area for the Negev. So these territories are going to overtake the people. Now the territories themselves obviously are standing for, for Israel. But there's irony here that territory dispossesses a people group. Even this territory will take down these people. I mean, normally it works in the opposite direction. People possess territory, right? In this case, territory is going to possess the people. 
Then we go on to verse, <clears throat> the rest of verse 19. It says, They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. Well, the land of Ephraim reflects really the tribal ter territory of the Ephraimites. They were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? What's the land of Samaria? Well, that was the capital city of northern Israel. When the two, when the tribes, the ten went north and the two stayed south, right? You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, Samaria is the capital. So this land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, what are they going to do? <clears throat> They're going to be possessed by um, the people of Israel. They shall possess the land of Ephraim. That had been grabbed back. And then Samaria, that land had been grabbed back. What's happening? They're regaining the land. And then Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Now, what's so special about Benjamin? It's one of the favored tribes of Israel. Maybe it has that favor because, because Benjamin's dad seemed to favor him. But Paul was a Benjamite. King Saul was a Benjamite. And Paul seems to be somewhat, somewhat proud of his heritage, not just being an Israelite, but he specifically mentions that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. It probably is placed in part from the Mosaic blessing that we see in Deuteronomy 33, where he's blessing the different tribes, and he says this about Benjamin, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. So Benjamin, <clears throat> again, being representative of all of Israel, but Benjamin specifically mentioned here, possesses Gilead. Now these four expansions in verse 19, when you look at it and if you plotted it on a map, you have Ephraim, which is in the north, Mount Esau, which is in the south, then you have uh, Gilead, which is in the east, and in the west is the Philistines. So you have these points, and if you plotted them, you'd see, okay, basically Israel's taking everything back. North, south, east, west. Four different times just in this verse, we see the word possession is discussed. But Obadiah isn't done yet. Because in verse 20, he's going to use it another time. Look what he says in verse 20. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. What's the exiles, the exiles of this host of people of Israel is referencing what happened in the deportation of the northern kingdom. Who ended up deporting the northern kingdom? The Assyrians, right? So the exiles of this host of people of Israel, talking about them being deported to Assyria, they're going to come back and possess the land that God originally gave them, which is now in the land of the Canaanites. And as far as Zarephath, a large, vast area. The exiles of Jerusalem, who were in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. The exiles of Jerusalem now, so you got the northern kingdom that was exiled in, in the 700 B.C.s, and then you get the southern kingdom exiled <clears throat> in the 500 B.C.s, a couple hundred years apart, where are they? Who, who ends up subduing them and deporting them? Babylonians, right? So here, the exiles of Jerusalem, because the ten tribes had already been carried off, you just got the two tribes left. Jerusalem's the capital city. They're carried off, but guess what happens? They're coming back. 
They're taking all the land, including even that dry land that's really not good for them. They're going to get it all. <clears throat> Here's what's interesting. That, that word in verse 20, the sephirot, it's kind of puzzled scholars a bit, actually quite a bit. And they've tried to figure out what exactly is this place. There's no like city or place that is well known in that ancient Near Eastern um, period. But they found an inscription in Asia Minor in what most people refer to as the city of Sardis, right? You've heard of probably that ancient city. And they found a bilingual inscription with um, the words S-P-R-D in, in English. Um, but those Hebrew words, which is where you would get this word sephirod, what's the idea behind it? So when they, when they got deported, I mean, most of them got taken to, back to Babylon, Bab, Babylonia, but they got put in all sorts of different places, even as far as like Asia Minor. And God's saying, hey, e even those people, even my people that are that far away, I'm going to bring them back. And they're not just going to come back. Like, they're going to be the ones that come back and are possessing the land. They're, they're still my chosen ones. It doesn't matter where they've been spread to, where they've been taken to. I'm bringing them back. Listen. God doesn't forget his children. He doesn't forget his children. doesn't matter where they're at. Even in some Asia Minor city, away from the rest of the Jews, spread out. No, he doesn't forget them. Now, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, I mean, their foreign policy, policy like every nation has a foreign policy. One of their foreign policies, when they conquered a nation, what did they do? Well, they exiled them. Not, not that bad of an idea if you think of it kind of from a human uh, worldly perspective because if you can get people out of their land, I mean, you're pretty discouraged, right? You take people out of their land and put them <clears throat> in a land surrounded by your people, it's going to be a little bit harder to regroup. True? If, if, there, if you're going to try to maybe overthrow and get an army back together, that's going to be hard to do in a foreign land. What be people are going to hear the whisperings of what you're doing, right? Also, if you're removing far enough, the, it's not just like they're just like 15 miles down the road. Like the trek back, as we see in, in Nehemiah, I mean, it can potentially be pretty brutal. So they had a policy, a foreign policy of exile. But here's the thing. The plan of Yahweh, the plan of the Lord is to reverse this practice, right? The nations took them out. What's Yahweh going to do? He's going to bring them back. So the Babylonians, they end up falling to the Persians in 539. What do the Persians do? They have a different foreign policy. Hey, we want to send the people back. We think they're better in their own land, flourishing. Primarily because when they're flourishing, we can get more money from them, right? So King Cyrus... And Isaiah talks about it. We won't look into it, but King Cyrus, he, 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 he lets the people go back, right? And that's where you get um, some of the books in the Old Testament, Nehemiah being one of them. But the general tenor of the composition shines clear that God has a promise of, of territorial expansion of God's people in all directions, north, south, east, west, until they regain the ancient promised land. But here's the thing. The general Old Testament theology, when you think about it, is that the blessing of God was intimately bound up with material possession of the land. If you don't have possession of the land, it's like, well, God's really not blessing us. How, did he, how does he 
discipline his children. He takes them out of the land, right? So accordingly, the, the land really had like a sacramental significance. Spiritual restoration to divine favor is linked with material restoration to the promised land. Here's the thing. Yahweh wants to make two things clear. Who gets possession? His children. Think about that. That's, as we're wrapping up here and coming to the end of Obadiah, God wants to make something really clear. His children get possession of the land. But he wants to make something else clear. Who gives the possession? God himself. God gives what he promises. What's possessed? It's the land of promise. Well, it's the land of promise. Why is it the land of promise? Because God is, is the promiser. He's the one who promises it. Whatever God promises, he brings to pass. And what's interesting is, is we can ask now, hey, was this prophecy actually fulfilled? Did the prophecy come true? Well, Edom and its inhabitants <clears throat> um, were regarded by the prophets basically as typical of, of the foes of Israel who hated and imposed all that Israel stood for. But we find out, if you do your research, Edom is displaced from its country by foreigners in the 6th and 5th centuries B.C. Even Malachi seems to infer it that by Malachi's time, the Edomites had already been driven from their capital city and they had been overwhelmed by a group called the Nabataean Arabs. As early as the reign of Darius, the Nabataeans had, had essentially pushed the Edomites out of their own land. Further, the Edomians, which the Edomites, <clears throat> the Edomians come from the Edomites, are defeated in 166 by Judas Maccabeus. You can read about that in the extra-biblical book of uh, Maccabees. Um, ends up essentially wiping them out. And when Obadiah in 19 talks about Benjamin possessing Gilead, this too literally happens under the Maccabean revolt. So we see God is faithful to his word. And if he says it, it will happen. So what is our place in the history of God's work? Once we get to the New Testament, you know, I was thinking about this as I've been preparing these sermons, like you're reading the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, Peter, I mean, there's no emphasis on retake the land or the land is ours. That's not really there. It's really not there. So what's our place as believers? Well, I want, I want to look at Matthew 28 and put, put that before us as a starting point. Matthew 28, go therefore, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Now think for, in the Old Testament for a moment, what is God always telling the Israelites? I'll go before you. I'll go before you. I'll go before you. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. What is Jesus doing here? I am with you always. So Yahweh in the Old Testament is saying the thing that now Jesus is saying in the New Testament. It's not too hard to make a, a link there. It's God in the Old Testament and it's God in the New Testament. Jesus is going before his people. But in the Old Testament, what was the focus? It was on a physical land that they were supposed to basically protect those borders. But what do we see here? The command is not to stay and protect. Verse 19, go. It's go and tell. You could argue potentially in the Old Testament it was almost like come and see. Come and see. But here Jesus is saying go and tell. Why? Because it's all God's. And what we saw in the Old Testament was really just a foreshadowing of where the message is supposed to ultimately go and it's to all. It's not just a physical land. No, it's a spiritual land. Now we're not coming with a physical sword. What are we coming with? A spiritual sword. We're not trying to slay men and get them subdued in that sense. No, we're coming with the spiritual sword to slay men's hearts. It's much, much, much bigger and much more glorious. So God is telling us, we've got our own land. And what is that land? It's the earth. It's the world that he wants us to go and do exactly what he tells us to here. Make disciples. How many nations? All. all the nations. Make disciples of all the nations. Okay. Then he kind of spells it out. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So you got the baptizing, you got the teaching, you got the making disciples. That's what we're doing. That's how the borders are enlarged. We're not concerned about some, some country uh, making it uh, subjected to, to our whims. No, we want, we want people of the country, we want countries themselves to bow down to a holy God. Amen. To recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. That, and guess what? That's what the gospel can do. By the power of the Spirit, it can grab hold of people's hearts. There are still thousands of years later, have you ever really thought about that? Thousands of years later, there are what we call unreached people groups. They've never heard the gospel. Never heard it. Never heard it. Thousands of years later. So guess what? We're supposed to still be going and telling. Yes, right here, but yes, out there as well. And yes, over yonder, over the seas everywhere. What, what's our hope? That people bend the knee to Jesus. That they come and receive him. That God grabs a hold of their heart and does exactly what any believer here has experienced. True forgiveness of sins. Cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Walking in righteousness and truth. That's what he wants. Everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, it's only, if you think about what Matthew 28 is saying, it's really just a fulfillment of the original cultural and dominion mandate given to Adam and Eve. Now it's just becoming much more clear what it really looks like for us as believers. Adam and Eve were told to do that. Now we're understanding what that looks like as the church. How does that look like for us to walk that out? 
how does it look like for us to live it out? Well, it's us being the, the, the living examples, the living sacrifices of Romans 12 as we share with others the hope of Jesus Christ. Sometimes that means we are directly using it. Listen, people will literally lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. And I think if I asked that question, any believer here would probably raise their hand. They'd be willing to, to lay down their life. You need to be willing. You should be willing. You ought to be willing. I hope you're willing. But as I talked about uh, just a couple days ago, Reformation Wednesday, when, when Paul's talking in Romans 12 about being living sacrifices, I mean, it's, 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 in one sense, it's kind of easy just to do a one-time thing, be done with it, boom. Oh, you want me to die? I'll die. Now, it's kind of harder to keep living when it's really tough and living and living and living in some tough circumstances and daily dying, though we live, daily dying. Because that's the I have been crucified with Christ life. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Right? I have been crucified. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. So that's, that's where we're supposed to be at. Okay? The small picture we have in the Old Testament is a huge picture once we get to the New Testament. The glimpses we have in the Old Testament are expanded even greater in the New Testament. And if we serve a sovereign God who is amazing, holy, righteous, and he is, guess what? Then the whole world is within reach. It's within reach. And so what do we do? We're looking for opportunities to send people. We're going ourselves to a country like Belize that God calls us to. We're supporting missionaries like Raymond and Leanne, so that they can go and reach an unpeople group. We're partaking in all aspects of the gospel, however the Lord sees fit. Friends, some of that is just the daily dying of living. Okay? We're going we're gonna to live a, a sacrifice financially. We're going to live a sacrifice by laying down our desires and taking up God's desires. We're going to live in a sacrificial way, in all aspects, whatever God might call us to do. Maybe he's calling us to believe. Maybe he's calling us to be one of the people to go reach that unreached people group. Maybe he just wants us to be faithful here and to use the resources. God's gifted some of you with amazing resources, and he wants you to use that, not to further your own kingdom or pad your own bank account, but to further his kingdom. And as we're learning with the book we're going through in the treasure principle, right, you can't send it on ahead. I think, you know, we were kind of talking about my life group, you know, about you don't see any hearse uh, pulling a U-Haul right? Because you can't bring it with you. You can't bring it with you, right? You can try. Uh, You can send it on ahead. I might have just messed that up. You can send it on ahead, uh, but how do you send it on ahead? Not by packing it up in the U-Haul. Not by, I mean, you just think of the, I mean, even the Egyptians, like they literally thought they could literally pack it up and bring it with them, right? And then they, they, they uh, have these archaeological digs with, where these pharaohs were buried, right? And tons and tons of riches, but they thought, oh, they've got that in the afterlife. Well, they were a little bit mistaken and in for a rude awakening, truly. <clears throat> but how do we send it on ahead? By doing what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What, what do we find out about our treasures? Well, anyone who owns a home, they probably at one point thought it was a treasure, right? What happens to our treasure? It starts breaking down. Right? It's the joys of home ownership. So these different, 
these different possessions and things that we have, well, one, they're pretty fleeting. They're pretty fleeting. The new car that you thought was amazing five years ago, you just get in it every day and it just gets you where you need to go. Right? It's rusting and it's breaking down. Do we need some of those things? Yeah, we do need to get from point A to point B. Do we need a little house for us? Yeah, we, got, we need a house. But, but is that our final resting place is right here? No. If it is, then yeah, go big. You know, go big. Go as big as you want. Go as bad as you want. No, but that, this isn't our final place. We're, we're passing through. Aliens and strangers, Peter calls us. Aliens and strangers. So how do we send it ahead? By faithful gospel living right now. By using whatever God gives us, the time, the treasure, the talents, to build the kingdom. Friends, once we breathe our last, it's done. It's done. So we've got brothers and sisters in the Lord who are with the Lord right now. They've gone before us. Right here is where we can make a difference. Every breath we take, we can be making a difference. As long as we have breath, we can make a difference for the kingdom. So when we're back in Matthew and he's telling us to go, man, let's make sure that we're being faithful to go. When he says make disciples, let's make sure we're making disciples. When, when it says to be baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's be faithful to see those disciples growing in the faith. When it says to be teaching them to observe, notice it says teaching them to observe, not just teaching them. You're not just giving them head knowledge, but you're teaching them to observe it, right? I mean, there's, there's unbelievers who know lots about God's word, but they're not observing it. So we're teaching them to observe it. We're teaching them to make it a part of their life in a way that they live it out. That's the gospel living, right? That's contrary to what I mentioned at the very beginning, the lex talionis way. No, it's the way of forgiveness. It's the gospel living. The gospel living puts the needs of others ahead of your own. It surrenders whatever Christ calls us to surrender, and ultimately it starts right here, all of us, and then whatever he calls that we have to surrender unto him. Why? Not just because he, I mean, he's already got it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Does he, does he need anything else? No. And if for some reason he did, he'd just be like, boom, there it is, right? But he doesn't need it. He's already got it. It's already his. It's really for us. Are we going to be a part of what he wants to do? That's the question. I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it. So it's back to the Romans 12. Daily living by dying so that you can live, so that you can die to self and live for Christ. That's the living I encourage each one of you to bend the knee to, to take up the cross and follow him. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that we can live however you call us to live, which is by your spirit, by your strength, by your grace. We can have gospel living. It can be real. It can be impactful. So, Lord, help us to receive this word today. Help us to accept it. Help us to be the good soil that walks the path of forgiveness, 
walking in righteousness before you, Lord, and that we would do this all for your glory. Amen.